You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. In today's episode, I have Bill Thompson as a guest to talk about Spartan Forge. In essence, this is an app that hunters would be able to utilize to tell them when and where are the best times and places to hunt. What makes Spartan Forge unique, however, is how those predictions are made. See, Bill has spent a couple decades working in military intelligence where massive amounts of data are filtered through computers to identify patterns. Then, the computers will use those patterns to predict what will happen on future events. This is what's referred to as machine learning. And a big part of the beginning of the podcast goes into a little bit more detail on exactly what's going on and why such a massive amount of data couldn't be analyzed meaningfully by an individual or even groups of individuals. During development, Spartan Forge's machine would be fed more and more data to make it more accurate, but then would always be tested against real-world deer data to assess accuracy. So really, there's no human bias in this. It's not Bill's idea of what's going to be a good time or place to hunt. It's all based on the patterns that the machine can recognize. As a data guy myself, I found this whole discussion very interesting. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. On the podcast with me today, I have Bill Thompson. And Bill, why don't you just real quick give the audience, you know, a quick synopsis about what Spartan Forge is? So I guess the Spartan Forge is a machine learning company. And what we're doing here is we're trying to get a hold of as much of whitetail data as we can that's as unbiased as possible. And then using that whitetail data to teach a machine the constraints or the ways that a white-tailed deer uses to first choose when they're going to negotiate train or be on their hoof as much as possible, and then secondly, how they're going to negotiate that train. So instead of coming to the table with any kind of presuppositions or misconceptions or conceptions about how deer move, we just allow the data that we collect and the many different forms of data that we collect to drive how we do this analysis. We teach it to a machine, and then we test the machine and improve it to see, uh, you know, how good we can get at predicting that those types of movements. So that's kind of like the 45 second, uh, long and short of what we're trying to do here. Sure. So would it be, would it be safe to say that it's kind of like maybe some of the other, you know, systems or, or what do you, whatever you want to call them that people are used to where, uh, you got something that tells you if it's going to be a good or a bad day to hunt and potentially where you might want to look at hunting based on various factors but maybe the difference with your uh, system is that it's got an input of 
maybe many more data sources, so much data that one person or a group of individuals couldn't possibly look at all the numbers and crunch them, that it has to be done by a machine? Yeah, you got it exactly right. So I would say where our similarities with those companies end is, you know, we're all trying to do prediction on when deer might be moving. That's kind of where it ends because for us, we aren't making a man-made algorithm that uh, does these predictions. Like I said, we have a lot of data, uh, different data points, primarily the one that we're using right now or the one that we've, because we've got so much of it now is GPS collared deer data. We started with uh, deer camera data, uh, scientific studies, car collision crashes, and uh, DNR, uh, sample DNR data, like most DNRs will put out like a deer report every year. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was the first iteration of how we were doing this, and we just weren't getting the prediction. So we kind of built the first, I'd say the first generation of our prediction system using all of those, that data modality that I just talked about, all those different parts of data, and then tried to teach uh, a machine hey, you use these constraints and then see how we do. And then what was, what was happening was we were getting GPS collared deer data and then we were lining that up. We were asking our system, hey, we've got deer data for these dates. So we went back and got those forecasts and we'd do a prediction. And then we would look at the two and there'd be a big delta. In other words, using these kind of, I don't know what to call them, more pragmatic ways of looking at data, like someone saying to you, oh, if there's a storm coming, you need to start, you need to get out in the field before the storm. And then just using that as a piece of prediction piece is just one piece of the pie. Like, yeah, you can have some success doing that, but there's a lot more, uh, they're very complex animals. Well, I shouldn't say that. They're stupid, but they're complex, right? Because they, they, there are some things that they don't even know that they're doing, but then there's other things that are ingrained from evolution that they do. Um, and that's more or less what we're trying to learn is when I say ingrained from evolution is we're trying to predict for the, the general deer. <clears throat> so when we take all of this information, we can kind of say, okay, this is how deer are hardwired, but that's kind of before you start pressuring them. So if you're using our technology and you are hammering the same stand every day, or you're hammering, you know, the same 40 acres three times a week or two times a week or whatever, it's not going to do a lot of good for you because your deer is no longer the general deer, if that makes sense. Okay. You've conditioned it. You, right. You've 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 given it constraints to move under. Yeah, that makes makes total sense, and I, I think a lot of you know the listeners can probably, you know, have a good a good understanding that definitely pressure has a huge impact on you know a whole bunch of aspects of of hunting. So it sounds like from at least a base level, the machine, if we want to call it that, is 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 learning how to predict when deer are going to move. And then maybe it, it kind of adapts to, to be able to look at different inputs that might also affect the deer movement, whether it's pressure or various other things to ultimately try and give you a good idea of when is going to be a good day or a bad day, but it's based on just a ton of information from all these different sources. So with all these different sources, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned car crash data, you mentioned GPS collar studies from, multiple different locations and multiple different universities. It sounds like, um, I imagine that's all tied to location, obviously and, and weather data, um, DNR studies you mentioned. So I guess, how are you able to gather all of these sources of information? Is it just, you know, free information that's out there for anybody who knows how to access it or, or tell me how that kind of works. Yeah. So some of the information is out there and it's published. So uh, there's these, uh, academic repositories of data 
where basically you can think of like PLAS One, the Public Li Library of Science. They allow academics to freely store information on there, but the, the catch is that since it's federally funded or since they accept federally fu federal funding, that they post the data with the science. So <clears throat> they might do a study that's got to do with uh, um, fawn survival rates. So they GPS collar some does and they uh, GPS collar fawns. Then they want to store that data and they want it to live beyond just that person who did that study or if someone were to get fired or leave or whatever. They publish that online and then some of these federally funded places uh, allow you access to that data. <clears throat> I would say that makes up about 30% of our data. And we were able to get a pretty good cross-section. It's interesting because I don't know if it's a cultural thing or not, but it seemed like throughout the South, we were able to get a lot more data that way. And out of Canada, we were able to get a lot more data that way. Hmm. So all of, I, I think the deal with Canada is most of their universities are federally funded or funded by the Canadian government. Yep. So I think they're mandated because I, I would be hard pressed to find a Canadian academic that I reached out to where they're just like, yeah, sure, take the data. And then throughout the South, a lot of guys were really open with their data. And I'd say between that and, like I said, the stuff that was publicly available online, that's about 30% of it. The other 70% of the data was Googling studies, reading the studies, sending an email to the people who were on the studies and saying, you know, here's what I got from your data. Here's what I'm doing right now. And then here's how I might be able to help you if you want it. But also, I might be able to tell you things about your data that you don't know about using these methods that we're using. So some academics really get into that because they want to maximize, you know, all these things cost money. So they want to maximize the amount of intelligence that they're able to glean from the studies. So those kind of partnerships take place and are pretty fruitful. And then we also give them ideas for papers and then like the next year, like, hey, we noticed this kind of, you know, <clears throat> we noticed deer in this area that you had tagged, you know, use these constraints to move out under, but then you're partnered with the University of Michigan and those deer up there moved in this regard. And then here's the delta between the two of them. So that, that's the kind of exchange we get into with these guys. And then some of them just give it to us. But a lot of it was actually reaching out and, and having a dialogue and asking for the data. And I'd say, I'd say I've sent 2,000 emails. If there's an academic watching this, they probably have an email from me in their inbox that they either not answered or just uh, not opened yet. Sometimes I get them like a year later and they're willing to, sh to share them, and some people don't share them at all. Some academics I, I reach out to, and they're not interested in sharing the data. So, Okay. But, I mean, it sounds like by this point in time, because you've been working on this for, for quite a while, like several years, right? So you, by this point, you Four have, years, a, yeah. you have a, a pretty good repository of information from you know plenty of different locations throughout the country by which this is, is basically you know working against. Yeah, we've got, uh, I won't say the exact number, but we're, we are um, in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deer. It, when you add up the individual deer days from every caller, we're into the uh, hundreds of year, years of deer data. So <clears throat> we're talking uh, millions of data points, millions and millions of data points. And are some of these sets of data points kind of segregated by, like, say, age class or bucks versus does, things like that? Yeah, so right now, the model that we're using right now, we haven't done that separation. We don't have enough mature bucks to train a mature buck model because that's what I do want to do is I want to get into training a mature buck model. I'd say we're, from a data standpoint, you know, 50% of the way there. But we are going to do that. It's just machine learning takes 
so much data to get anything meaningful or anything that's not um, overfitted to the data that you're feeding it, that you have to just have droves and droves of data. And then the, the way that you can measure and know that you're not predicting to the data that you've trained on, but that you're predicting to the data or you're predicting to the machine and how it's learned the animals is, as you ingest new data that the machine's never seen, it's able to accurately predict against it. And that's how we measure success right now. So we, we, we aren't able to predict as well as we'd like to with new buck data. Um, our threshold for something that's commercial is 65% of the time. <laughs> so right now for the general deer, we can predict how they're going to act about 65% of the time. And we're not there with bucks yet, but I, I assume we will, I think we will be there in the next year or so. Gotcha. And, and dough, and dough, by the way, we also want to do dough. And it seems like this whole machine learning aspect of kind of analyzing the data is very, very numbers driven, uh, maybe statistically driven, but maybe not. Um, is it, is this something where you can kind of show any kind of statistical significance or is that like kind of out of the scope of what this type of, of data can really, can really give you? Cause I mean, you, you throw out a number like 65% of the time. I mean, what, what's the best it could possibly get in, in other words? Yeah. I mean, I think 70, to 75 three quarters of the time is about i think that's really the top now i know i've seen companies that advertise they can predict better than that but based on what i've seen and the data repository that we have and the fact that we're dealing with animals not with you know a car or a television set or something that's programmed that there's too much variability to get above 75 percent i think that's about where we are i mean we do use regression and statistics and how we measure and tag uh, and predict. So that statistical part is there. It's just once you've once you've trained the machine, trying to get analysis from that that's meaningful and statistics from that are meaningful are difficult because you're you're asking something that's built a lot like the human brain is built. So it would kind of be like asking yourself questions about why you do the things that you do. Like you're you're a complex system of overlays as it relates to instincts to do the things that you do every day and then your conditioning that you've had in life. So, I mean, when we start talking about animals and white-tailed deer, I think the top is 70. I think if we got to 75%, I'd be very happy. Okay. And when we say machine learning, I mean, is that basically the same thing as artificial intelligence or is it a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, they're very similar. When we talk about artificial intelligence, what I'm talking about is we're using the concept of a neuron. So you can think of it as there are three inputs that go into, a, like in the simplest terms, a, a decision point or, or the neuron itself. And then one thing comes out. So you have trillions and trillions and trillions of these decisions being made. And it kind of narrows everything down to saying, here's the decision I'm going to make based on all of these inputs. And this is the decision that I'll make 65, 70, 75% of the time. If all things equal, these are my inputs. That's kind of the way to look at it. And it's very similar to how the human brain works. Humans use artificial or use intelligence and they use a, neur a neural network for both conscious and unconscious conduct in the everyday world. And we're just mimicking that with a machine. So machine learning is, te is the teaching of the machine, right? And sometimes you don't need artificial intelligence to do that. Sometimes you can do that with a regression model. You can get something to basically understand 
the decision it should make, and it doesn't require neural networks to do that. But when you start talking about neural networks, you start talking about these algorithms that have been around for a long time. Uh, but what we've lacked is the processing powder and the compute and the systems to do it. So that only came about for the layperson to be able to use these things, you know, five to seven years ago, were these kind of networks abundant enough and distributed enough for people like myself to take advantage of them. Okay. So that's a really long answer, but basically, yeah, that's, that's kind of the difference. Okay. And, and maybe in a nutshell, it's, you, you've trained the machine to take a whole bunch of inputs and you ask it a question, what's going to happen? And more times than not, it's going to be right. Yes, exactly. And those inputs, uh, for the first, you know, the first thing that's coming out, which is telling us the when, when are deer going to be moving? is basically lining those movement vectors or those movement points when a deer moves and it registers in the GPS collar. We take first, if the GPS collar itself is predicting or is producing or collecting temperatures and, and, and weather environmental information, or we will align it up with something like a dark sky um, or a uh, or a, an AccuWeather service, depending on what's available in the area. And it's saying, this is the constraint. Here's how deer in the past have moved and then please identify, and this is another thing I've missed, I should say, please identify any patterns here that are consistent and then apply those patterns to future scenarios. So really, the, I, I should have said this in the beginning, the best way to describe this whole process is high level pattern recognition that's applied to a future scenario that hasn't taken place yet. I guess that's really the best way to describe artificial intelligence. Because really what we are as humans is pattern recognition machines. We recognize patterns we pick those patterns out and then we apply them in the future and and all of our emotions that surround that process reflect how well we feel in that current moment in other words the more you know about a situation the better you feel in it but the anxiety you might feel or the uh the worry that you might have is basically you know your pattern system pattern recognition systems the back of the brain saying I'm in a place that I don't understand and I don't recognize and and I'm going to up your anxiety to make you do one of two things, either get out of here or understand the situation, seek to understand the situation and start making decisions to help yourself out. And that's really what an artificial intelligence uh, network is doing is it's seeking to find those patterns based on what's happened in the past and then apply those patterns in the future. Okay. Yeah, that does make it a little bit more, more clear in terms of what what actually is going on kind of behind the scenes. Yep. And, and so when I look at the app, uh, just kind of the, the screenshot of the user interface for, I guess, what's in, in process right now. So I, I can look at each day and each day it's telling me an activity level, low, medium, high. But then there's yep. also something that's new that I, I don't think I've seen before, which is the pattern of movement. If, if it's a normal movement pattern that's to be expected or if it's abnormal or if it's off pattern, what, what exactly is that, uh, is that telling me the pattern portion? What is the pattern portion telling you? Yeah. Or the both. Maybe I'm uh, making some assumptions on the activity level, but so why don't you explain, uh, I guess what both of them mean, yeah. both the activity and the pattern. Yeah. I think your assumptions are probably correct about movement, but I think there are some things that people overlook as it relates to movement. That is a two and a half year old buck may move. Let's, let's focus on movement first. A two and a, a one and a half, two and a half year old buck or doe may move a lot and be a lot more willing to risk its neck for food during the day because they have a lot more environmental and evolutionary pressure to feed or grow older and then compete and mate. So they're 
you know, I don't know if it's willing, but they're more apt to move during the day, or you might see them first on your food plots, or you might first see them leaving their bedding or their security areas. And uh, I don't make any assumptions about why that happens. I just know it happens. And then you'll have bucks that, you know, might wait, especially on public land, in my experiences, you know, they might wait until there's 12, 15 minutes of sunlight left. And they might, that might be the first time they leave like their security, secure area. But what, what's interesting about the data is one of the things that I've found that's pretty interesting is the bucks on the days where movement is high will move more in their core areas. In other words, they have, I don't know, I, I'm not a biologist, so I can't speak to it, but there'll be more movement in their, that core area where they're betting at, which is good for me. I hunt public land in Maryland. So understanding, and in West Virginia now, this just this year will be my first year in West Virginia, but understanding when a buck might be moving more during the day in his core area will help a guy like me who on public land is hunting the bedding areas. So a lot of people might say something like, uh, movement for a buck doesn't really help me because I'm hunting this five and a half, six and a half year old buck who's really mature and he never leaves his, you know, I'm not going to see him more. But if you understand that he might traverse, I think the, I think the numbers bear out between 150 and 350 yards a day during daylight hours, but it's always in this tight area, right? Whereas the two and a half or three and a half year old buck is more apt to start that movement vector towards their intended food source earlier, but the other buck is still moving more towards the day. So I guess all of that about the movement portion is to say, it helps you both if you're just trying to do some harvest management or if you're just trying to get a you know meat in the freezer or if you're hunting a mature animal. Both of them, uh, based on things like, some things I can talk about, some that are special sauce, and some things I can't talk about, react to differing weather situations in different ways. But the key is, if the, if the younger bucks are moving more, there's a good chance that the older bucks are moving more, but they're just remaining in their core areas longer. I hope I'm not being confusing there. No, but, I think um, that makes sense, because if I think about it maybe in another way, the if it's a if it's a day that say is low activity, and let's say I'm hunting a an older buck, and I get in tight on that bedding area, maybe he doesn't get up at all before dark. Maybe he gets up and just mills around a little bit, or he stands up and you know stretches, moves ten yards. Whereas on one of those Precisely. days where it's high activity level, maybe he's up, you know, an hour before dark. Maybe he's he's milling around, he's browsing on things, you know, in his kind of bedding area. He's venturing out forty fifty yards from the bed, um, you know, before before it gets dark, he's just moving more total yardage, uh, and just yep. kind of moving more. And, and maybe in the case of like those younger deer, um, you know, maybe they're moving earlier, maybe time frame is not the most accurate, but just maybe in terms of total distance covered throughout a given day, yep. that's kind of what the activity yep. level is telling you. Yeah. And what, and basically what I was trying to say, and another way to say it, I'm sorry, I'll probably do this a couple of times because I think about these things a lot is bucks. Generally the smarter, older bucks are kind of staying in their ellipse. <clears throat> they kind of establish an ellipse. For daytime bedding and they have many reasons for doing it one of them obviously is that they feel like that that area is to their serves their advantage they're the things that they you know come to the table with which is a sense of smell and a sense of hearing and an okay sense of sight so <clears throat> they pick their bedding based on those things and based on as you know uh based on the the predominant wind in an area so when you're using our application and our application you had mentioned kind of looking at the common operating picture or the cop as we call it when you know the predominant wind in an area and you know some of the leeward ridges in hill country or areas of transition in flat country where a buck might be spending his time, uh, you know now 
<clears throat> on the high movement days, on a low movement day, I won't try to hunt a buck in this bed because statistically my chances of seeing him on the hoof in that area where I think he might be betting on that leeward ridge could be very low because, you know, that's how the general deer is acting. Whereas on the high days, I can get in there to that, you know, I try to get into the 100-yard range or so, maybe even closer if it's advantageous to me. Uh, I will only do that on those high days just because I'm trying. I don't want to burn that area out, and I also don't want to educate that buck or allow him to understand that somebody's, you know, been in his bedroom. So it's kind of one of the ways that well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the hunter who's just trying to do management on deer at, on that spectrum all the way to the hunter who, who he or she is trying to go after that trophy buck, they both can be served by understanding the amounts of movement that are on a given day. Okay. And, and this is based on, like you mentioned, could be wind direction, could be wind speed, could be precipitation, could be a whole yeah. slew of factors that kind of go into making this decision of whether or not it's going to be a high or low movement day. So yeah. the next, next question, I guess, would be, I know one thing that I've, I've heard, and especially when you got into the, the nitty gritty of like whether or not you would choose to, to hunt, say, an older buck near his bed, I know of a lot of guys that will swear by the moon for certain things um, in relating to that kind of um, decision making, like they might only go mm-hmm. in for the kill on like a certain moon phase or something. Do you know if yeah. the, and if you could tell me, is the, is the machine utilizing moon data? Is there some kind of trend there? Is that, you know, kind of part of the algorithm, so mm-hmm. to speak? Yeah. So the way that we develop what features we're going to use to train our model is we first look to see if the features correlate with movement. We have like a laundry list of environmental variables that we might get from a weather company. We will take every one of those things and then see if they correlate with movement. In other words, do they do, does knowing that information help correlate with future movement or is there a pattern in the current movement that we can exploit from that GPS? And so we do include moon data in there. And that is to say the machine does see using the moon as a, as a good measure for whether or not there's going to be particular movement. I think it's more or less or more often coupled with there won't be movement than there will be movement. I know there are people, especially in the industry, I admire a lot like Charlie Alzheimer. Um, I don't know if you've read any of his books, but I you know, grew, grew up reading his books and he was a big believer in correlating moon phase and the harvest moon pre-rut, pre-peak you know, chasing with moon data. But we, I just haven't been able to get the data to do anything, to show us anything that says it will drive movement on this particular day or coupled with the harvest moon. It's not there. But what we do see is, and I, I can only make guesses about why this is, on the morning after a full moon, there seems to be less movement among mature animals. But, or at least that's how the system's treating it right now. It could be that we get, you know, 2,000 more deer, and then we figure out, oh, you know, it's kind of equaled out. But for the way that it's predicting right now, moon gets moon phase uh, gets a vote. Okay. Yeah. So that that's interesting that it's you know, everything is based purely off of you know what the machine. There's not really any you know personal bias that's kind of plugged into it. It's just hey, is the is the model agreeing with this or not agreeing with this? Once you test it against the actual you know, the fresh data or whatever to see if it matched. I guess from that perspective, the machine, maybe it's a good distinction to make that the machine is not telling you why certain things are going to happen. The machine will just tell you, Hey, we see this with moon or we don't see this with moon. 
Uh, we see this with rain. We don't see this with rain. It can't tell you why because it's, it's not programmed to do the why. The why is a biologist question maybe, uh, but the machine is going to tell you yeah. yes or no and, and what's going to happen. Yeah, I kind of couple it with when you start looking at how people go to the gym. It's, it's an easy way to explain it to people. January 1st, right, <clears throat> happens. And then by January 5th, you might see, I don't know if you go work out at a gym or not, but you'll see a ton of people in the gym on January 5th. And then people will say, well, that's because there was a New Year's Eve and they've been eating a ton of food during Christmas and during uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And now they need to get in the gym to try to burn all that stuff off. So you might be able to, a system that looks, examines that data might say, yeah, it seems to us that after the 25th of December and the 1st of January, people hit the gym. And that's all the machine knows. The machine doesn't have a concept of it's because people are eating a bunch of food and, and, or because they made a New Year's resolution. That is not a concept that the machine can understand. All it understands is traffic peaks to the, to the gym around 5 January. Does that, am I losing you or does no, that, that kind of make sense? No, that makes a lot of sense. To a certain extent, we can think about the why and discuss the why, and that'll maybe help us understand. But at the end of the day, it's maybe not as the why isn't always as important maybe as the, as the what? Right. Especially for the purposes of a hunter. So one, like I said earlier, how we kind of help centers of um, academic centers out is we might tell them something interesting in their data that they either didn't see or, uh, or they didn't have, they, they weren't able to do a juxtaposition. Well, they weren't able to compare it with somewhere else where deer do this here, but they don't do this here. And so it, it's the same thing there is, I, I can't tell you why the data is telling us this, but the data is telling us this. So when we go to a center, it, it's kind of on them to try, try to figure out the why. So we might give them that interesting tidbit, like, hey, did you know that your deer do this when it's this, this, like some interesting ones maybe that we shared have been like storm movement really only drives pre-storm deer movement when there's been five or more unfavorable feeding days within 10 days of that movement period. So in other words, if there have been 10 favorable feeding days before a moderate drop in pressure that's indicative of a storm, there won't be a ton of pre-storm movement. But if that pressure really starts to drop and then there is a huge storm, you'll see a lot more after. Does that make sense? In other words, if there are tons of favorable feeding days before a storm, a buck's less likely to risk his neck to go hit that alfalfa field or whatever than he would be if there's been a ton of unfavorable feeding days or they've been sporadic. And then all of a sudden you've got this horrible storm. You'll see a lot more movement uptick right before that storm. And then depending on the length of the storm, and I won't, obviously, again, there's a little bit of secret sauce here, but depending on the amount of days of that storm or how long that front takes place, coupled with how much the pressure has dropped, then you can see a really radical difference in what happens after that storm, if that makes sense. Gotcha. No, oh, that's interesting. And it, and it makes sense too, when you think about it, when you try and, you know, look at it from the Y perspective too, I think you can make some inferences there. Is the, the data set, does it predict the same type of things for all kind of regions of the country? Is a deer, a deer, a deer, or are you seeing different things in say like the South and you see in the Midwest and, and Northeast? Yeah, so there's variance. There's certainly variance. We don't have as much Northeast data as we'd like, but we do have a fair amount. <laughs> and one of the things that we've seen with Midwest, especially that there's a stark contrast between Mid Midwestern deer, or maybe the deer that you're more familiar with, than there are in the South or even in Texas. The things that we see drive movement in the Midwest are not the things that we see drive 
movement in the in the southeast or in the south, the deep south. I haven't crunched the numbers on this, so I'm kind of guessing. I would say out of the general deer, they're about 60% the same. But then in that 40%, there's variance. <clears throat> and one point of contact might be in the southeast. I, I think I've talked about this before, but I, I keep banging the door on this one because I think it's something new and unusual that people, especially in the south, can take advantage of. But when there are periods of light rain or rain, there's a, there is a notable uptick in movement. And it's uh, it's crazy. Every time we ingest deer from the southeast, it's kind of like the first thing I look at is what happened during periods of light rain to rain and even sometimes in heavy rain. And you see a lot of people, I'm a member of a lot of bow hunting forums, and, you know, it's kind of a perennial question. Do you guys hunt during rain in the south, in the southeast? Because I'm in Maryland, so sometimes I'll go down to, like, North Carolina or something like that. Yep. And a lot of, and it seems like the consensus is always 70% of guys say it's a waste of time, but then there'll be those 30% of guys who are like, oh, I killed a big buck during a rainstorm on this day because I was just stuck in the tree. And it, and it kind of goes back to the reason why we work hard to eliminate bias and why we don't take any kind of, kind of the more, more pragmatic hunting tips that a person might give you. Yep. We don't use those to feed our algorithm because if we can't get the data to bear it out, we don't do it. So yeah, it, definitely there's a difference, especially when you get south of the Mason-Dixon between how deer move down there, like I said, with the rain and then up north. And I kind of touched on it before with the storms where um, especially, you know, in the fall in Wisconsin, when it's November 15th, it, there can be storms that totally shut down movement and you'll see no movement during those, those times, especially if it's bitterly cold. Uh, I guess before and after those storms that shut down movement, are there heightened movement periods both before and after in those type of scenarios? I guess the, the more shutting down that that storm could be, maybe the bigger the uptick around it. Yeah. The other one is, um, as I said before, when there are more storms, maybe when you get like two or three storms leading up to it or two or three <clears throat> unfavorable feeding days leading up to it, then you get slammed with a storm. Uh, then you'll see a ton of movement right before and depending on how long the storm is, a ton of movement afterwards. Um, but there, it's I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of presenting it to you at a high level, obviously, because I don't want to get throw the baby out with the bathwater and give it all away. There are more things in there than that, and there are right. more scenarios that present themselves surrounding weather. Uh, that I, I just think people, it's not that people haven't thought about it. It's just I don't I, I don't know of anyone who's doing the kind of work that we're doing. So I don't know anybody who's taken. Nobody can live a life and observe, you know, 18 million deer movements over a seven-year period of time and then draw an inference from it. We just, nobody can do that. There are people who are out there, you know, who spend a ton of time in the deer woods and they might come up with some pretty good observations that help them kill deer, but no one's done it. I don't think at the that I know of at the scale that we have. So it, it really helps you understand all of the in and outs that surround these things because you know they're an evolved species and they evolved uh with a pattern and a framework that made them successful and that's why they're still here today uh, the goal of our system is to understand the patterns that surround that framework and then allow the hunter to exploit them yeah i, I kind of think about something that's that's maybe interesting is we sometimes put a lot of you know stock in what we see on our trail camera data maybe like year to year and, and maybe a few days out of the year we see things that are common um, in a certain area, uh, maybe even like a certain deer, for example, but to a certain extent, if, if I'm looking at, you know, maybe a dozen data points on that one trail camera over the course of a year, wouldn't it be 
way more advantageous for me to have all the data for when that deer wasn't right in front of that trail camera, right? You just think about like right. the, the amount of, of data points outside of that versus the ones that I do have, right? And that's, I guess that's kind of the, kind of the point about trying to analyze the data in this way. Yeah, I mean, I guess an interesting point of contact on that would be when I first started this endeavor on my own, <clears throat> I had wired up some sensors on a hunting property that I had access to. And long story short, I had put some like accelerometers, which are just things that detect movement. I'd molded them into rocks and then attached them to like a 900 megahertz uh, uh, transmission piece that I just bought online. So I started these things together <clears throat> and then they register movement. And what I was seeing was there were bucks that were using areas and walking around areas. And I knew based on the amount of pressure that was being exerted on these scrapes, because these accelerometers were measuring, were measuring how much pressure was being put on the scrape when they were pawing, mm -hmm. when they were trying to get that inner tarsal into the dirt, and then when they were rub urinating. So <clears throat> I might see a I might have one camera that's set up over a script one scrape or or one, you know, bait pile. And then I might have 12 of those sensors, those accelerometers I would talk about. Well, those accelerometers would be getting hit for an hour surrounding the, that maybe one picture or even that half a picture that I just caught of the deer going by that scrape, simply just scent checking that scrape and not working it, but then working every other one in the area. So, of course, I'm not a biologist and I can't say this to be true, but one of the thoughts I started having was, maybe on my older cameras, maybe not on new cameras, but maybe those mature bucks didn't like those cameras or didn't like those areas where I was pulling, when I was pull, going out there and pulling cards because I wanted the more high resolution pictures. But they're much more adept to working that scrape line where I had all of those accelerometers that had no, there was no evidence of me there and they didn't have any, I, I never had to go and check those things. So the cameras that I were checking, they were hitting more. So I guess that's just like another contact point to think about. There's tons of information being generated and the only way that you can get that kind of information would be with a caller. Right. No, that's interesting. We kind of went off on a, a big tangent there in terms of like what is kind of presented on the, the user interface. And it was good. Yeah. I, I like the stuff we went into. We kind of talked about the activity level, but then again, that other part of it was the pattern of movement, whether it's normal or abnormal or off pattern. Um, mm -hmm. What? Is, yeah. So let's go back to that. What is that? What is that saying? Yeah, sure. So the pattern... So we define a pattern is in the machine we'll see a caller GPS use during a wind a particular access vector to an intended place. So whether it's a scrape line or a rub line or a, a place with food, right? No matter what it was. So under certain conditions, say it's a northwest, say the northwest wind happens 64% of the time. The machine sees, okay, when it's this temperature, when there's this dew point, this cloud cover, and we're in this moon phase, and it's this this wind direction, the buck uses generally the same path to navigate to its intended feeding station, and maybe it sent checks a scrape line along the way. So the way that it has built the pattern based on those environmental uh, effects is driven by its ability to scent check or leave scent behind. <coughs> And in that, a pattern is built. Say that buck is walking, and all of a sudden there's a wind shift. Well, now he needs to establish a new pattern to achieve the goals that he wanted to while he was on the way to that food. And it's also going to change the way that he scent checks the food area. A lot of older bucks, as you know, <clears throat> will J-hook or scent check an area before they go in to actually feed on it. The weather really drives 
how that pattern takes place and a few other things drive how they choose that pattern. So as it establishes a pattern, then the question becomes, all right, what things are in the forecast? What changes to the environmentals are in the forecast that has driven pattern, has driven them to deviate from that pattern? And are they present in the forecast coming up? So in that, you let's go back to the scenario with a bedded buck on a ridge on a hillside. You've got a bedded buck on a hillside. He chooses this hillside because the way the ridge sets up, it's perfect for a northwest wind. You can see in front of him, <clears throat> he can get the wind over his back. And then he's got his kind of, in the military, we call it a pace plan, his primary alternate contingent, an emergency way of getting out of that place if he smells something or sees something. How he's going to choose to leave that area when he's not being pressured is highly correlated with the weather event that takes place. So you might, or is taking place. So you might see a buck who's bedded on a point, depending on how the wind is and how it may change. It may be great how you've set your stand up going in there, right? For the wind that's happening right then, but then the wind's going to change by 5.30 PM. Is that part of your calculus when you're hanging that stand? Because if it's not, you could burn yourself or you could not see anything. So on that cop, on that common operating picture, that's the second thing that we're telling the user is, are, is the weather environmental variables that are present suitable for the pattern staying stable or is there going to be something that's happening uh, where we can correlate a pattern shift and, and we're quite good at that which is why we give it uh, that's why we do that prediction piece I don't know if you've done it before but you can kind of you get into a bucks bedding area and you kind of look around and you can kind of see okay if the wind's coming out over my back like this I can see down here and then I know that there's you know acorns over here or there's an agricultural field over here so how would i leave this place to keep as much things open in front of me as possible while keeping the wind at my back so i can smell anything that might be coming from behind and you once you understand that you can kind of see where the paths are driven in the ground and you can kind of see how they're patterning using those environmental variables so that's just kind of the second thing that we tell the hunter is you can expect normal pattern movement from a bedding area or en route to a feeding area or a scrape line, or there's too many things happening and it's too dynamic of a situation and they're going to be out of what is a predictable pattern for that area. Gotcha. So if I'm looking to go on a hunt on a given day and it's, let's say it's a high movement day and it's a normal pattern, then based on that, there's a, a good likelihood I can, I can say, okay, based on my scouting, I think he's bedded here. I think he's going to move out of here this certain way and I'm going to set up based on that and there's a high probability that's going to happen. Whereas maybe if it's also like a high movement day, but maybe it's, you know, abnormal pattern or off pattern, uh, maybe it's a little bit dicey. Maybe that deer's not going to do exactly what I anticipate him doing based on my scouting. Um, and I, you know, could maybe burn myself because of it. Yep. So then you make the decision, do I want to sit some, some secondary or tertiary escape route that he might use to get out of that intended bedding area? Or do I want to just leave that whole area alone knowing that he might scent check that area when he comes back in? I tend to leave those spots alone. Like when I found good bedding or I have found a good transition point between bedding and feeding. And I last year as I was going through our data and kind of doing the pro staff version of, you know, making sure this stuff stayed good. What worked well for me was avoiding those areas. I avoided those areas during off pattern days, even if it was high movement. Because what I didn't want to do was the buck coming back to that area and then send checking where I was on the stand, you know, six hours earlier or something like that. Right. So what's the difference between off pattern and abnormal? 
So it's just we have established uh, we've established what we consider pattern, and then you know that's what they're doing sixty percent of the time, and then we just graded it. I, we couldn't think of a, a great term if you have a good term, but it's basically you know off pattern just means they're not going to precisely be in the pattern that they're going to be in most of the time, and then abnormal is just forget it. The, there's going to be too many. There's too much variance. There's too many things happening with the wind. And, and that's something that we're going to put on our cop. Like you'll be able to hover over and get like a tiny explanation. Gotcha. Gotcha. So there may be some changes to the user interface, but at, at kind of a high level, the information that's presented is going to be similar. Yeah. And we're a dynamic company. So if we get user feedback in droves that says, Hey, we like this or we don't like this, you know, we can make those changes, but we're also going to make our user interface highly toggleable. It might not be as changeable or as dynamic in the beginning, but certainly when we're hitting our paces by the rut, you're going to be able to customize your user experience. So you're going to be able to see the things that you think are important, the things that you want to see. Okay. Yeah. And just looking at the screenshot that I have right now, in addition to those predictors, you know, there's also a satellite map. Um, there is a kind of a wind rose that's showing the, you know, I guess the wind direction would be that day. Uh, or within like a certain time frame, showing you what direction it is, how strong it is, what percentage of it is, you know, exactly northwest or north northwest or or what have you, gives you maybe a little bit better picture than just an arrow, you know, going one direction and saying seven miles an hour. Um, right. And then, and then of course the current weather forecast for the next several days, yep. and also the weather history. So I can yep. I can maybe look at the you know the weather history and it's telling me that the min, mean, and max temperature for that is a certain amount. And then I can look at that yeah. weather forecast and say, okay, it's going to be, you know, hotter than normal for the next four days and then big cold front 20 degree swing or things like that. So I can, in addition to looking at what the machine predicts, I can also look at some of those normal things that I would typically look at if I was trying to, I guess, predict myself if it was going to be a good, a good day or not. Precisely. And then it's also fun to just see how you, how your presuppositions line up with that, you know, because I think people are pretty good at instinctually, especially guys and gals who spend a lot of time in the woods, they have a pretty good instinct. They might not be able to put a finger on exactly why they think this day is better than the next one, but then they end up being right. It, it's, it's fun to see those kinds of things, you know, because especially when I'm looking at days, one of the things I'll do is before we ingest data from a GPS, you know, an academic throws us some GPS data and I get the time period, I'll look and try to do my own prediction on when I think the high and low days are. And then I'll have our machine do its own predictions. And then I'll look at what the reality was that, you know, this is actually what happened. And, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I'm a novice hunter. I've been hunting, or novice hunter, excuse me. I've been hunting for, seriously, for about 10 years. And I recognize there are a lot of people out there who, you know, spent 50, 55, 60 years in the deer woods. Um, I'd say I'm only right about a third of the time. And that's looking at truth data. So that's looking at the actual GPS data. Like, here's what Bill Thompson thinks is going to be happening in these deer woods where we have these callers from. Then here's what actually happened. So I think that's another important distinction is you got to get pretty long in the tooth and see a few things in the deer woods in order to fancy yourself as somebody who can accurately predict what deer are doing or not doing. So it sounds like, based on the, the numbers you shared earlier, the machine is a better predictor than you are. As an individual, far better. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. and what what you would hope and you would expect. Uh, so has, I guess, has there been any preconceived notions or pragmatic beliefs that you've had as a hunter that prior to looking at these 
data sets you've believed to be true and now believe something different based on what the machine predicts? Yeah, so I guess the first one would be I have always been a harvest moon hunter and use that kind of Charles Alzheimer. <clears throat> like I said, I grew up reading those books and I admired the man and the, you know, our websites, you know, fill, filled with his photographs. Um, I always use that. He, his books or he would publish something in deer and deer hunting where it would say, here's when the harvest moon is. There's the first, you know, full running moon, the running moon before the uh, uh, autumn equinox. You would use that and then say, here are the hot days to be, here's when you need to be in the woods. I always use those dates. And as much as I, as I would have loved it to been true, I haven't been able to get the data to back that up. Like as much as I admire that guy and what a great outdoorsman and great Christian and great man he was, the data doesn't bear those things out. And I wish it did because it'd be a simpler world, you know, um, if we could just say, hey, November 8th is the day you got to be in the deer woods. What I find is, you really can't get a good idea of when or where you should be in the deer woods till about four days out, five days out. Um, and, and that number is growing as our machine gets better. It's just one of the things. And then the second thing, I guess the really big one too is um, the rain. You know, just saying to someone, you think about an animal like a deer whose number one defense system is their scent, right? And then you always surmise that, you know, for myself, I never check cameras unless it's raining. I've, it's always been a practice of mine. Uh, I, I would never go out and pull SD cards unless it was raining outside. And I thought my my thing was, A, the deer are probably going to be on their bellies, and B, they won't be able to smell me as well. Um, especially down south, that's not the case. They're, they're up on the hoof more so than they normally would be on a nice, clear day. And then the second thing was, you know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, and I'm not a white tail biologist. But when you look at the smelling capacity for a white-tailed deer versus a dog, a white-tails is better. At least when you look at the physical amount of space that the receptors on their nose take up on the face, biologists guess that they smell better than dogs. most dogs do. Well, you know, I've got a German short-haired pointer that I use to take shed antler hunting, and he could shed antler hunt after a rain, before a rain, or during a rain. And he can also pick up the sense of me or my kids you know, any time of the day, it doesn't matter when, like I can give him a command, he can go out and find my son, even if it's raining outside and he doesn't seem to be any slower. So I say all of that to say, I don't know if my uh, conception about rain and how it impacts white-tailed deer movement, at least as it relates to the South or early season has ever been correct. <laughs> so I guess those are two pretty big presuppositions that I operated under up until last year. I guess another point to the, you know, rain versus dry in terms of scent if my memory serves me correctly i i've heard from a couple dog tracking you know uh, for tracking wounded deer that the hardest time that those dogs will have to follow a wounded deer will be when it's just like bone dry out i've heard that too i've heard that as well because yeah that's one of those things where everybody says if you're gonna you know go out go right before a rainstorm check your cameras because it's gonna wash all your scent away or be out there during the rain. Um, so it's, it's interesting to kind of, you know, think about it from a different light and especially based on the, the actual data. Cause if not that many people are out there in the woods when it's raining, then, you know, how accurate is the, the general hunter assumption? If nobody's, if not that many people are out there to actually verify if it's true or not, it just kind of gets, right. gets perpetuated. And then I think the other thing that happens too, is if you've got 20 years of deer or four generations of deer on properties, 
where hunters never go out during the rain. You're conditioning those animals to go out during the rain. Uh, you know, I've, I've read things about where if people only go out onto properties during the night, they'll start seeing more daytime movement. Now, those are just studies, right? They're anecdotal. But, you know, it kind of goes back to our first point that we, we educate these animals based on our own patterns and our own bias and our own presuppositions, and then they react accordingly. So, so if you've got uh, the whole Southeast that never goes out during a rainstorm, or goes out during medium or low rain, the deer start moving more during that period of time. Right. I guess when you bring up pressure, pressure obviously is, is huge, especially, you know, for guys that are hunting public land, it can make such a big difference in many facets is the, is the machine, which obviously a lot of the, the data is based off of GPS collar studies, which I imagine is probably some that are public, some that are, you know, private, how is the machine taking pressure into account when it's making its predictions? Yeah. I mean, right now it's not, that's not something that we can account for and we don't have the droves of data, but it's interesting because I was just in a conversation with someone earlier today where I think we've cracked the nut on how to introduce pressure, especially on public lands, but more importantly, understand how deer account for pressure from the data that I've found. Bucks kind of like their areas, especially mature bucks. When they've settled into an area, uh, if you happen to go through there just one time, they might come back five days later and then just resume business as usual. It's not until you really start pounding it a few times or in a short period of time, maybe three times in a week or something like that, that they might start trying to find new areas to go into and bed during the day because you've blown them out of that area. I think by next season, we will have something that will help answer the pressure question, but it will also help answer the question of what does the general hunter do? So I don't know if I've talked about this on a podcast before or not, but I, I kind of talked about we're doing what the general deer, we're, we're programming the machine to understand what the general deer does. We're going to start looking into how we program a machine to understand what the general hunter does. And then we can kind of war game those two things and help, hunters on public land like my whole this whole company that i built with these other two guys is uh jimmy and vaughn are their names it's all built around the public land hunter i mean i'm since i've been in the military i've been a public land hunter and it, it, you know the first few years i did it was very frustrating because i didn't know what i was doing i was used to hunting out in north dakota where it was unpressured on private land and um i didn't quite understand the intricacies that go into being a successful you know, public land hunter until about five years ago, six years ago. And um, now that I've been implementing those things, I only hunt, pretty much only hunt public land. I don't know. I, ha I haven't hunted private land in some time. And uh, that's who we're building this all for, is the public land hunter. Of course, a private land hunters can be able to take advantage of these things, of course. But they don't encounter the amount of opposition that your general um, public land hunter does. So that's a really long-winded answer, but yes, we have, I see our being next year having a general hunter model that's going to be able to educate hunters on maybe how to understand the woods in a way that they haven't thought about because like everyone else, they have bias and they incorporate that bias when they select where they want to sit on a piece of land. So when we have both sides of that coin, both the hunter and the hunted, then we can get really specific about how 
we incorporate pressure into our calculus. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's super interesting because it does seem like, you know, even though there's more and more people that are starting to become more, I guess, savvy in, in certain aspects and, and doing abnormal things to try and get on deer, I'll, you know, I'll bump into more and more people either going in deep or finding these off the beaten path spots. Still, the vast majority of hunters are hunting the way that they usually hunt. Uh, and it seems like, especially in bigger pieces of public land, even if the area overall gets pressured a lot, it seems like there's always going to be pockets, pockets that are pressured. And then there's pockets that maybe haven't seen footsteps in years. And if you can find those unpressured pockets, I've oftentimes seen deer in those unpressured areas. If you get in there, you know, undetected act very much like they're unpressured because they have a certain amount of comfort level in those little pockets. So I would imagine that even if the, the model doesn't yet incorporate pressure, you can still probably you know, use that data to your advantage. Uh, if you know that you're getting into areas that are the least pressured areas of the places that you're hunting. Yeah, exactly. And that you're in areas that are advantageous to bedding and to deer. You know, what I did a lot of the times in my early hunting days was get a look at a map, kind of understand where I wanted to go. And then I'd look for the, you know, the nicest place that looked the best in the woods and then hang my stand up there and then just wonder why I never saw anything, you know? And it's kind of like a learning curve that people have to engage with and understand, okay, these are the things I need to be doing to be successful. And my hope with this company is to help shorten that learning curve for people who are serious and who want to, you know, um, uh, you know, put meat on the table or put, you know, antlers on the wall, whatever their goals are, we're going to be able to help them out, you know, coming up here pretty soon. You'd, you know, kind of mentioned before, and we touched on it, I guess that, the initial portions of this, when it goes live, are going to be telling telling us when are good times, when are bad times to be in the woods, or I guess good or bad times for deer movement in general, uh, and whether it's going to be normal or non-normal movement. But the, there's a second part that you guys are also working on that is tackling not necessarily the when, but the where. So I guess yeah. what what are you what's in the works in terms of the the where. <clears throat> Yeah, so right now we're that's what we're spending a lot of our time on. We're just doing some final updates to what's going to be pushed out in the beginning of September. But what we're also working on in the background is this wear piece that we're getting very good at. There's a few things that we're ironing out. And it's again, it's the same concept, and that is pattern detection as it relates to how deer negotiate topography and vegetation under given wind and, uh, well, wind, a lot of the time, it's, you know, wind gets the, a big vote, I'd say the biggest vote, and then other environmental factors determines how they're going to negotiate a piece of property. And there are patterns in that because there are learned behaviors that they've used to, you know, escape predators, how they are going to choose to negotiate areas are, are driven by, you know, cover, concealment, topography, and then weather factors. Like those are the kind of things that that drive their movement and how they choose. And then also calorie uh, optimization. That is, they're going to, you know, without an obscene amount of pressure, they are going to choose the easiest path between A and B. So when you can educate a machine on those, you know, give them the raw data, the actual movement data, and then say, pick out the patterns. What are the, what are, how do they negotiate topography under these conditions? on these days and then how do you see it happening in the future and 
right now it's looking very good. I, I believe we'll have something out by the end of the year that'll probably be for our pro staff to just kind of like evaluate and say, you know, like what's happened with me, uh, it might put you on like a trail, right? Like uh, there might be like a small trail that is, you know, I don't know, the Appalachian Trail or something like that. And the machine just hasn't been educated on what an Appalachian Trail is or why a deer would avoid it. So there, there are those types of things right now that we're trying to um, iron out, but we're getting there. And I'm confident that it'll be done by the end of the year. And I, and I can say that I'm confident that it'll be done for two reasons. A, I did this work in the military and I know it's in the art of possible and I know how it's been done in the past. So we can leverage that in machine learning, it's called transfer state learning, which is basically you're trying to solve a problem, isolate the things that are different, but then select everything that's the same and transfer that to your new model. So if I'm trying to understand how a person might negotiate a mountain in Afghanistan, they're operating under similar constraints that a deer would use, only they're probably not factoring wind, but they are factoring calorie restriction. They are being pinched into pinch points and they are utilizing, you know, the easiest way to go up and down. So when you have a model that can predict those things and the way that our model is looking right now, uh, we're pretty, we're certain that by next year, there'll be something out there for the general hunter where they're going to be able to highlight a piece of property and understand here are the best days to be on that property hunting the the bucks or the old, you know, the matriarchs. And then here's how the general deer will use topography in this area to navigate it under these wind and temperature and pressure and cloud cover constraints. So are we saying that it's going to, the machine is going to say like, okay, we know that based on these set of variables, uh, deer are more likely to move down in lower elevations for whatever reason. Is, is that going to be kind of like the, you open up the app and it's going to say, you know, Hey, hunt lower in, in elevation on this given day. Or are we talking like on the map, it's going to highlight, it's going to figure out, you know, through, you know, topography or LIDAR data or whatever, what those low areas are and then maybe look at the aerial and say the machine can pick out okay here's this looks like cover to to the machine and it it figures out okay based on that it highlights maybe hot spots on a map like what what level of of detail are we talking here in terms of it's going to tell you where are good locations so i have a mark on the wall for what kind of level of detail i want and then there's right in the military we have a saying no plan survives first contact in other words you can have the best plan for combat and how you're going to engage the enemy. But as soon as the bullets start flying, everything changes. Uh, and so no plan survives first contact is getting its vote here as well. My goal, what I'm looking to have is you're going to be able to highlight, let's just take, for instance, hilly terrain. You're going to be able to say, here is hilly terrain. Here's the predominant wind for this area. Here are areas from doing uh, image analysis that we see promising transitions in vegetation that are in areas that are in the predominant downwind area that a buck would use for bedding. And then here are the favorable, based on a buck's capabilities and how we've seen them act on other grades before in topography, here's how they would generally utilize this area. And then here are areas that you can be looking for scrapes and rubs and those types of things. So I see it as being a two, a two layer thing. First, it's going to just tell you, Hey, here's, where we see bucks bedding and does bedding in this area here where we see the pinch points for activity like maybe you want to hunt it during the rut so here's where we see uh you know say you've got a hundred thousand acres of public land just to put a round number on it 
here are the machines going to instantly say, here are the hubs movement that we see that would be conducive to seeing a buck on its feet during daylight because of the constraints of vegetation, topography, and a deer's capability. And then when you get on the ground, you can start feeding the model more intelligence by saying, okay, I didn't see scrapes in this area. I saw scrapes in this area. There was rubbing activity in this area. There was no, there was bedding in this area. <clears throat> and then you feed that to the machine and the machine gets more accurate with saying, okay, if you saw this here and this here, then we think this is a good choke point or this is a good place that you could probably place a stand. So I guess it's two layers. The first layer is quickly being able to discern public land that you maybe have never stepped foot on before, very similar in the way that you or I might do digital scouting or cyber scouting. But then secondly, um, if you have an opportunity to scout out in the off season, then you can provide more intelligence to that machine and the machine can make better predictions on where there might be uh, uh, mature animals or just, you know, deer in general on that piece of land. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's that two prime approach is very similar to what I, and I imagine you probably do right now too, is that, you know, you look at a map, you say, based on your experience, you think, you know, these five spots are probably going to be the best spots out there. And then when you can't tell from a map is, Hey, there's, you know, a tree stand here with a salt block. There's no, you know, no mature box moving in this area because there's too much pressure. Uh, you can't tell inventory. You don't know if there's, you know, the biggest buck out there is a, a you know, two-year-old 120-inch or if there's four over 150. Like, those certain things you can't tell until you get out on the ground. So that second part of the equation where you're saying you can kind of feed more information and allow the, the machine to reanalyze based on the updated data and then make new, you know, new assumptions or new guesses, I guess. Um, that's yeah. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, so, and there are more things revolving around that that I'm just not at the point to talk about because some of them are pretty lofty from a goal perspective. They're in the art of possible because I've seen them get done. It's just very expensive. Um, and then the other thing is, or, you know, the other thing that we're going to bring to bear is, and you mentioned it before, so I'll just talk a little bit about it, but um, <clears throat> very high resolution uh, topography data, you know, higher than what we are currently seeing right now. And then throwing that, throwing the, the movements of deer uh, on the ground with that specificity of there, okay, there's a bench on the side of this ridge that you can't see on a topo map, but with our data that we're using and that we've, you know, that we're putting together right now at, at a high cost, we now know that there are two benches on this ridge that you probably should go take a look at and see if you see some, you know, cleared away ground where a buck is resting himself during the day. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's even something that for me, I'm starting to, you know, figure out more and more what resources are available in terms of, you know, a USGS topo is as good as a first pass, but then there's other data like, you know, 3DEP or LIDAR or whatever, you know, you can go and look at that and figure out, oh, there's an old, you know, four-wheeler logging path cut into the side of this hill because you can see it on shading, yep. but you never see it. Yeah. So, I mean, that level of detail, it really does give you, especially before you step foot on it. I mean, it gives you just a, a whole nother world of, of thinking about the micro spots, even if you can get a good macro idea just by looking at the, the basics. Yeah, exactly. And then understanding, you know, as I said, a lot of that is our goals for next year. I know that they are going to do them. Um, it's just, as I said before, no plan survives first contact. I'm very confident that by next year, we will have the analysis piece down. Well, by the end of this year, the analysis piece where, 
either a member of our pro staff or, uh, you know, somebody that we've asked to evaluate the model will be able to highlight a piece of land. And it's going to do that first layer of analysis for you and say, these are areas that you should be checking out. Um, there are constraints on that second piece that I talked about. And it's just until we start doing it, that second part, which we're just getting into. Um, I don't know if that'll be an 18 month thing or a 24 month thing. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to, to summarize, there's a piece of it that's coming very soon. That's going to be telling you when are good times to be out in the woods. And then there's going to be a follow-up piece that is going to give you a good first pass at showing where. Um, and so these things are obviously going to be useful. Maybe for people who are getting started, it's not going to you know teach them the why, but it's going to tell them maybe the what. That begs the question, do you think that some of this information is, is, you know, especially in the context of, you know, people who have kind of learned the hard way, you know, thinking about it, is this making things too easy uh, for people? I guess, what are your, your thoughts on that? Or do you think that there's always going to be a certain amount of woodsmanship that is going to, you know, help people kind of get to the highest level that they, they can be in, you know, anything that's outside of woodsmanship is only going to be able to ever get you so far? Yeah, I, I kind of, so I understand where you're coming from and it's something that I've wrestled with a lot. The, the way that I've explained it or the way that I explain it to people is this is really no different from getting someone like your, like, you know, you've obviously you've got a, a massive YouTube channel. You do tons of, you know, videos showing people how to do scouting. Uh, there's nothing stopping you, a, a buddy of yours from asking you, hey, th- here's a piece of land that I'm thinking about buying. How would you negotiate you know, setting up stands, where would you put your feeders, or you think the movement's going to be, and those people are certain are getting that access, have that access to you by way of your friendship, or you know, you meet them online or something like that. And then they're able to ask you those questions, and they're able to take advantage of your years and years in the woods to to give themselves a leg up on another person who may not have that access. Um, we're currently right now, the people who have that access are either friends of yours or people who are have the money to pay someone else to tell them. So all I'm trying to do is bring that knowledge to the masses so that your public land hunter who might be, you know, I come from a minimum wage family. I joined the military when I was 17. Uh, We would never have thought of, well, A, having the capability that we're talking about today, but B, paying someone to come and tell us how to better hunt our land, right? It's just, it was outside of the realm of possibility 10 or 15 years ago because you couldn't share information online. So as we move in, you know, continue to move into this digital age, we're just working hard to make sure that everybody, especially the public land hunter, who I think any any fan of the outdoors or of hunting sees the need to get people interested in being successful on public land, because that's how we retain public land for the future, for other things, not just, you know, whitetail hunting, but for elk hunting, pheasant, grouse, uh, you know, uh, turkey. Um, the more people that are interested and successful and that are generating revenue for the market, the more we will see politicians respond to, you know, off camera, you and I talked about like restricted lands, you know, those things are annoying. It's annoying to see a big, you know, especially where I'm from in North Dakota, a big piece of land that is, uh, cut off and I have to go knock on doors and everyone's telling me no, because they're also hunting that land, but it's public land, right? Nobody can get into it. The more and more revenue we generate as hunters, the more people that are interested, the more people that are voting to put people into positions of power in our governments who are interested in these things, uh, the more success we're going to have, right, as public land uh, uh, hunters. So 
that's a really long answer and a really long way of saying is I'm just trying to bring the same embodied knowledge that all of us, you know, that you or someone else uh, might be using to help out their buddies or themselves. And I'm trying to bring it to the masses. And what I'm doing is I'm making sure that when they pay for that stuff, this isn't Bill Thompson guesswork because I'm not an expert hunter. I do okay, but I'm not an expert. What I am an expert at is, you know, what I've done in the military for the past 20 years, which is finding bad guys and isolating the variables that are and the digital uh, information that is out there at our fingertips to um, do that in a more precise and measured way. And I'm simply bringing that to the hunter now as it relates to white-tailed deer is I understand you might have 14 days of vacation this year. I understand that you may, might have had time to scout three, what you think are three good buck beds in the off season. I'm gonna tell you the days that you can go there and get me on the table or uh, you know, pursue your passion as a trophy hunter and get some antlers on the wall. So for me, it's just getting that information to the masses, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, and, and there'll always be people who are concerned about the ethic, but I mean, 25 years ago, we didn't have Google Maps or Onyx or Base Map or any of these other things. And we didn't have, you know, the, the trucks that we have today, the types of cell phones that we have today, the ability that we have to communicate, the ability that we have to look at digital maps. If that had been introduced 25 years ago, hunters might look at that and say, well, that's unethical. Like we shouldn't be doing that. You know, for me, it's let's use, let's use technology to get as many people interested in hunting as possible, short of putting, you know, a gun on a predator drone, <laughs> right? I don't, I think we all can agree that's too far out there, right? But um, as far as giving guys the information and gals the information that they need to be prudent with their time in the woods because it's limited and to maximize their ability to harvest something, I think is an ethic everyone can get behind. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it into perspective. It's a good way of thinking about it. I, I, I think so. And that's, you know, what our goal here is. Like I said, we're a public, we're a public land company where my goal is to make sense of the public land, especially for the novice hunter who might not have any other access, might not have an uncle or a grandfather to ask these questions to, or a Garrett to ask these questions to, right? And he might not have the time to go and scout in the off season. I know there's a lot of times, especially due to the military, where a couple of times I had deployed to Afghanistan, I couldn't scout the off season because I was deployed and I got home December 1st or January 1st. And, you know, my time in the woods was going to be spent hunting and not scouting because A, I didn't want to spook the animals that were in there uh, out and B, I wanted to, you know, get some food on the table and get some hunting done when I got home because that's all I was thinking about it while I was deployed. <laughs> yeah. Are there any bits and pieces that you can think of that we either haven't touched on or, or other things you'd want to uh, talk about? No, I mean, we have a website out there. It's, you know, www.spartanforge.ai. On there, it's linked to our Facebook and our Instagram. Um, we're going to be releasing some articles pretty soon that are going to be touching on the same things that we're talking about. And then um, some YouTube videos that kind of help people conceptualize what it is that we're doing and kind of get some more information. And if they want to interact with us or if there are serious hunters out there who want to uh, be a part of that pro staff thing I was talking about before and they fancy themselves a serious public land guy or gal, um, we'd love to hear, get their input on uh the stuff that we're doing now and later in the season. But besides that, I mean, I think we've covered the long and the short of it. Okay. Perfect. Well, sounds yeah. good. No, I, I appreciate yeah. your time. Appreciate your service for, uh, for your military days. And uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Yeah, and thanks for having me on here. And thanks for uh, your patriotism. 
That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.